0: Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, January 18, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old new outdated and everything in between even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before the universe of music is a vast one to enjoy from my discussions you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label recording artist or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings now with that out of the way welcome to my musical universe my guest today is new hampshire born veronica lewis veronica is an exciting emerging talent in the blues and roots music world, a mesmerizing live performer with serious piano chops, soaring vocals and songs that boogie away your blues. She was a seasoned pro at age 17, rocking the piano and electrifying audiences with music that's exciting and energetic yet rhythmically complex and challenging. A tight straight ahead trio of piano, drums and sax delivers a stunningly full on sound as Veronica belts out a message made to heal the soul. Her strong expressive voice is punctuated with a light and delicate vibrato belying her age. This indie American piano player, singer, and songwriter puts a truly modern spin on the roots of American music. Call it roots, call it blues, call it what you will. It's 100% Veronica Lewis. Veronica, a prolific songwriter with blues progressions as a launching point, writes Original songs with stories that are both thought-provoking and humorous. Her inspiration comes from a mix of musical genres and ears, ranging from Katie Webster, Otis Spahn, and Dr. John, all the way to Freddie Mercury and Avril Lavigne. Veronica fuses these critical elements together with the true language of the blues and the energy of the early rock and rollers, like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis to create a truly individual style that is completely Veronica Lewis. During the summer of 2019, Veronica formed her first band with Don Davis on sax, and Mike Walsh on drums, performing at festivals and venues across New England. She began turning the heads of audiences and industry insiders alike. She's garnered such prestigious awards as Blues Artist of the Year 2020, Boston Music Awards, 2020's Boston Blues Challenge winner, 2020's Best Young Artist, New England Music Hall of Fame. Veronica has traveled across the country from Nashville to LA playing her music at venues and festivals. She debuted at the Rhythm and Roots Americana Festival in Rhode Island, in Las Vegas at the Viva Las Vegas Rockabilly Fest, And the National Women in Blues Showcase and in the 35th International Blues Challenge in Memphis. With her recent signing to Blue Heart Records as the capstone to 2020, Veronica shows no signs of slowing down. 2021 is already slated to be a busy and career-defining year, seeing the release of her album a return to live performances, and get, can, continuing to create new music. Veronica has opened for Gary Hoey, Eric Gales, Papa Chubby, Mr. Sip, Sugar Ray, Rayford, Behrens Whitfield, Roomful of Blues, and she has performed with Marsha Ball and studied with Victor Wainwright, in clarksdale mississippi it is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe veronica lewis hello veronica
1: hi thank you so much for having me
0: well it's great to talk with you and i am very happy to have you on my show i'm curious to know something i have taught high school and at the university level since the mid 1980s in my experience the students i had never heard of boogie woogie piano or people like cow, cow davenport pine top perkins jimmy yancey mead lux lewis let alone jerry lee lewis or little richard until i introduced them uh, introduce them to them in my jazz history or history of rock and roll classes. So I'm really curious to know who or what turned the light on for you? How did someone at your age get interested in boogie woogie piano?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I started playing piano when I was around five, six years old. And, you know, what really got me excited about this genre in particular was. All different kinds of music, even when I was that young. And something just really pulled me to kind of early rock and roll, blues, boogie woogie, piano in particular. Part of it was the really raw, authentic sound and style that these early players and songwriters had. And another part of it was just this really fun, exciting energy that it had you know, one of the first musicians that really got me excited about playing piano in this way was Jerry Lee Lewis.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I was five years old watching, you know, Great Balls of Fire of, you know, him performing it on the Steve Allen show. And he, you know, he was one of the first that really brought the piano to the front of the stage and made it something exciting. And it looks like so much fun that I just decided one day to sit down and try to figure it out. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, would you say that uh, Jerry Lee was was uh, the primary model for your style?
1: Definitely a big uh, musical influence for sure. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many, so many artists that I listened to and players, you know, like Katie Webster was another big one. You know, her songwriting and playing and, and singing was a big influence on kind of my early beginnings as a, mm-hmm. as a player.
0: hmm. Well, you know, I mean, the style itself has a real interesting history, and uh, that I used to enjoy, uh, you know, teaching my uh, students. You know, coming out of uh, kind of the logging camps of eastern Texas and western Louisiana in the early part of the 20th century, and uh, and how it kind of you know expanded from there and and infiltrated. Um, you know, into New Orleans and, and, and further, you know, north, and then, of course, becomes like a predominant dance style. uh, That is then, you know, again, emulated by a lot of those early uh, rock and rollers, like Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and Little Richard, and, and, of course, numerous, numerous others. And you're right, I think that that one of the things that's, that's fun about that that music is there's that energy, especially in that, you know, that left hand, you know, pumping out that particular beat. And then, and, and, you know, and then the right hand, of course, you know, in case some players improvising or, or, you know, putting out the melodic line and uh, it was, it's a very danceable music. I mean, if you can't move or don't tap your toe to that kind of music, then, You're either dead or just not responding very well.
1: (laughs) There's nothing like it, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, um, then who were you feel like were models for your style of singing, your vocal style and the quality of your singing?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the early players that I listened to, like, you know, Ray Charles and and Katie Webster and, um, you know, Little Richard, those were big influences on my piano style and really vocal style. Um, But, you know, Patsy Cline, too, is a really big influence, definitely on um, just, I really admire and respect her, how, you know, vocally and how she really blended you know, multiple genres, whether it was kind of pop and and country back in, you know, the fifties and more, a more modern example of a singer that I admire was Mike Ledbetter. He was a really, one of the best blues singers I had ever heard. And, you know, he did unfortunately pass away a few years ago. And after that happened, I, I really, took a dive into his life and, and found out that he was a classically trained opera singer. Because of that, I decided to find a uh, an opera singer that could kind of mentor me. And I did. And that's honestly, that's what really allowed me to find my, my own vocal style and voice. So mm-hmm. It was really interesting how that, how that all kind of is connected.
0: So you've had some uh, quote unquote, classical vocal yes. training then.
1: In the last uh, about two years, I've been working with an opera singer, and she's incredible. And it really has been just learning proper technique of how to sing Mm -hmm. correctly, no matter what style you're singing. You know, she always says good technique is good technique, and you can apply it however you want.
0: No, I agree. I agree 100% with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a a trumpet player, and, um, you know, when I've had students, I don't. I don't focus on necessarily jazz technique or classical technique, uh, but uh, just good technique so that you can play in any style. And uh, I I think that's great that you're you're you know take getting some formal instruction for no other reason than it ought to uh, preserve your vocal health.
1: That's a huge part of it too, Craig. I mean, yeah, you know with you know, this is really my first kind of tour with my first album that I've been doing and something Mm -hmm. that came up with making sure I'm, you know, protecting and, and my vocal health. So that's a really big part of it too, that you brought up.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sensitive to that because my wife is a, is a vocalist and uh, a classically trained vocalist. And, and uh, so, you know, uh, I've often heard her you know, speak about, you know, various things uh, in her own work in terms of how she warms up and various things that she needs to do to, to make sure that she takes care of and preserves her voice. Because, you know, I think sometimes we forget that the voice is a musical instrument. And just like you wouldn't beat up your piano or your horn, you don't want to beat up your voice either. You want to take care of it and make sure that you're you're doing, you know, what you need to do to preserve it, because it's the only one you're ever going to have, they don't make replacement parts for the for the the voice.
1: Absolutely. No, you're so right. And, you know, I'm self taught on the piano, I, I basically, I've never really had a, a teacher. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: when it came to me beginning to kind of discover singing, and trying to unlock my own voice, I, I found that it was very difficult to not have some kind of direction, even more so than on the piano. Like it really is important to have a a professional, uh, you know, um, helping to because it's such an internal thing. Singing it's you know eighty percent mental, and if you're not thinking about it the right way or having the right kind of visual images in your head as you're singing it can really um, mess you up.
0: No, you're exactly you, you actually you, you stole my thunder I was going <laughs> to ask you that very question about, you know, the importance of, of your uh, study is because, unlike the piano, which is visual and right out there in front of you and you can see it. Uh, the voice is completely internal. And a lot of it is mental concept and how you how you deal with it. So that's, that's uh, wonderful that you've got, uh, got that going for you. Let's talk a bit about your songwriting. Yes. Um, the songs that you write. Um, are you uh, particularly again, following, say, uh, a model and, uh, you know, and again, I, I I want to emphasize in my questions about models, we all model after someone. I mean, first we imitate, then we innovate. It's not that I'm, you know, saying that you're a copycat or anything. I think you're very original, but we all do start somewhere. So when I talk about songwriters, do you have any particular group of songwriters that you've admired and perhaps uh, modeled yourself after?
1: Oh, well, I mean, there's so many songwriters and players that I admire. The list goes on forever. Um, okay. Definitely when I was first starting out playing, a big part of it was listening and just kind of um, allowing myself to discover new artists and new styles and, and then bring it together when I was writing and improvising, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. John, Professor oh. Longhair, Ray Charles, you know, these are all names that definitely come to my mind of, of artists that I admire, whether it's because of some genre blending that they can do or just originality that they have with their songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I even I even admire obviously more modern artists, even when it comes to, you know, um, songwriters like Freddie Mercury and even Avril Lavigne. I'm, I can find things to to appreciate and and really respect from all eras. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do find when I write songs, I try not to listen to anything really before mm-hmm. kind of the writing process because it it helps to kind of clear your mental space and and really focus on something new and and improvising uh, over something totally original.
0: Well, and I think that's 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 a good idea when you think about you know you don't you want to put forth what is clearly honestly uniquely you mm-hmm. and so you don't want to color that with you know listening to someone else and then go oh i think i'm going to write a ray charles style song or i'm going to write a freddie mercury style song or something like that that you uh, you know but having you know i've talked with several singer songwriters about this very same subject we we talk about the amalgamation of all these various models, influences, whatever you want to call it, that then sort of become part of our own musical DNA. But then what we we put uh, forth is uh, a unique combination of all of those influences in a way that no one else does. And that's what makes our voice unique.
1: Absolutely. I I definitely find that, you know, my style is definitely a mix of genres, whether it's you know, New Orleans Cajun style, early rock and roll, you know, roots rock mm-hmm. and roll, mm-hmm. obviously blues and boogie woogie. And what mm-hmm. brings it together and kind of the common denominator, if you will, is, is me and my my essence and my kind of mm-hmm. um, playing and singing style that I bring to it. And that's definitely really important is to preserve that and to make sure that, you know, you can clear your mind before you get into that writing space to make sure that it's 100% you. And you have that clarity.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I'm going to kind of go into a more of an academic kind of uh, question for a moment. Uh, You know, an aesthetic one, if you will. The ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. Uh, One could witness Uh, the emotional pain, or one could experience, excuse me, the emotional pain of what they're witnessing on stage without having to bear the actual pain of what they were viewing. So I ask you, is the aesthetic purpose of your songs to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners, or are you, as some other songwriters have done, simply serving as an observer of cultural trends and making a personal commentary?
1: Well, for, that's a very cool question. And, you know, when I write songs, I, I try to find things that are meaningful and significant to me in my life. And whether that's an experience, a memory, a feeling, or, or a part of my life, you know, I always write to just to just share who I am with mm-hmm. the listeners or with anyone and just hope that even in a small way, maybe they can connect with it and relate to it. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, just to share my perspective and, and my my own experiences through the songs and let people get to know me through the music. That's really what I, what I'm aiming to do, I guess you could say.
0: Hmm. That's, that's really very interesting. I, I, I like that. I like that. Uh, that way of expressing it, you know, that you see your songs as an extension of yourself and Absolutely. then uh, uh, hoping or with the idea of that hoping that others will make that connection uh, in terms of uh, uh, shared experiences or or at least, uh, you know, whatever you're singing about bringing some sort of memory or emotional response from the listener uh, that makes a connection. So I think that's, that's really kind of cool. I mean, ultimately I would tell you, I think that music is just another form of communication. And, uh, and I think that we, as the, the musical artists, you know, it's sort of like we put it out there and then the, the consumer, the listener, you know, picks it up and we connect,
1: it's really true. It's, it's almost as if music is its own language and its its own separate way of communicating, like you said. Mm-hmm. That, that's such a, a huge distinction, I think, that needs to be made, which is, it is, and especially with the songs I write, they, they really are a, an extension of me. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, they're so deeply a part of me that I think that the only goal, if you could even call it a goal, is just just to let people see who I am through, mm-hmm. through the songs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good, honest, uh, you know, approach approach to things. And, uh, and I, I like what you're having to say. Well, before we got to the, you know, the COVID pandemic and things shutting down in what clubs or concert halls or other venues did you most often perform?
1: Well, you know, this is my first album. And so Mm -hmm. this is really the first tour I've had around a full project and You know, obviously we've been extremely safe and um, been doing less shows than a normal year. Obviously we've been doing a lot of outdoor shows and very limited, you know, very safe um, indoor shows. But before, you know, COVID, I was doing, playing all, you know, Northeastern clubs and venues. And even nationally, I was playing a lot in Memphis and Nashville, even, you know, Florida and um, California, like Los Angeles. Mm, Um, The big kind of uh, landmark shows for me before COVID were some major festivals like Rhythm and Roots Festival in Rhode Mm -hmm. Island, Mm -hmm. and I also played Viva Las Vegas Rockabilly Weekender back in 2019, which is a really, really cool experience. So I've definitely had, you know, I've been playing out since I was 12 years old, so (laughs) really for half my life, I've been performing, so I've had lots of amazing experiences
0: Oh, that's that's great. Well, you know, reflecting on your your past experiences, what would you say is your most memorable one?
1: Oh my gosh, I've I've had a lot of incredible moments. Um, and well, I guess you know, thinking back to some of the most memorable, there's definitely one particular memory that's deeply ingrained in me. It was back, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. I had just won the Granite State Youth Challenge, which meant I was the um. It was named like the Youth Blues Musician of the Year for New Hampshire, and I had the chance to go down to Memphis and perform on Beale, Street. and that was really my one of my first shows I ever played was down on Beale Street, and I was at I was at Silky O'Sullivan's, and my set was right after Barbara Blues' set, and if you don't know, she's the reigning queen of Beale Street as they know her down there. And I've got to say, I was pretty intimidated. You know, I had, she she had a full band with horn sections and drums and guitars. And, you know, I just had my keyboard and a microphone and I felt pretty intimidated and pretty nervous, but I just got through the performance and I focused on how much I love playing and performing and I really enjoyed it. And I've got to say, after that, I've never been... I've never been really that nervous to go on. So I've got to say, it was definitely a bittersweet moment. I was very nervous, but it was incredible to to do it and to have a great time.
0: You really had a baptism of fire there.
1: <laughs> yes, mean,
0: yes. Yeah, I can see why you'd say you wouldn't be nervous again after after that. I mean, my goodness, it's, a, you know, talk about a hard act to follow and, <laughs> And yet yes. you go on and and uh, and survive and have that. And I can see why that's uh, an experience that would help temper your uh, your performing acumen. So I mean, good for you. Okay. Hey, well, let's get let's talk about your new album since yes. you've you've, taught, you've referred to it a few a few times. Your new album's entitled "You Ain't Unlucky." Now, six of the tunes on the album are originals, and two are are covers. What led you to cover? Louis Jordan's Is You, Is My Baby, and Katie Webster's We Sweet Daddy.
1: Well, you know, with this album, I really wanted to create almost a stakeholder of my musical journey and career so far. And a big part of that was having um, a lot of, mostly originals on the album, and the covers I, I did choose to play, I, I rearranged, well, for, for Is You, Is My Baby, I, I totally rearranged the music and, and wrote basically my own instrumental parts for it and for Woo Wee Sweet Daddy, I, I really wanted to pay respect to, to some of the artists that really shaped who I am as a musician, which were mm-hmm. Katie Webster and, and Lewis Jordan. Um, you know, how, what came about for, for Issue is my baby, you know, I had I had written this kind of song on the piano, no lyrics, and I sat on it for, oh, who knows, maybe a year or so. And I just mm-hmm. didn't know really what to pair it with lyrically. And then I I was listening one day to to Is You Is My Baby. It came on, it was the first time I had heard it and I immediately just loved the lyrics and the message of it. So Mm -hmm. I kind of rewrote the lyrics in a different perspective and and moved them around a little bit. Um, And I put it to this this music I had written and it just worked so well immediately. Like just the first time I played through it, it it just felt great. And it was something I definitely wanted on, on this album. And with Woo Wee Sweet Daddy, I just, I love Katie Webster and I I really wanted her to be a part of this too. So, you know, a big part of, you know, what this album too represents is a lot of the heroes I've, I have are, you know, I never got the chance to meet or see in person. And, and really the only way I, I feel like I can connect with them is to, is to bring their essence to my style and to my playing. It's, it's almost like I'm sitting next to them on the piano bench when I cover their songs or when I listen and kind of bring that energy to my song. So it's, I just wanted that to be on this, this project.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I've been a big fan of Louis Jardin for, for a number of years, long, long time. And uh, you know, cause he is the father of R&B and, yes. uh, and I've always, you know, I love, for example, uh, uh, Oh, I guess it was back in the 1980s. There was a big revival of his music, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I still remember. I don't know why it sticks. I guess because there's a hook in the lyric. But what's the use of getting sober if I'm only going to get drunk again? <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, and uh, and things like "Choo Choo Chaboogie Boogie" and and. Uh, uh, There's nobody here but us chickens. That was one of my favorite, you know, and he really had that, you know, he knew how to take and make uh, really what was, in, in a sense, he was, he comes out of the big band tradition and makes this very danceable popular music with a smaller group you know mm-hmm. and uh yeah so i i'm a big fan of his music and i really appreciated you put it you know i had never heard of katie webster until i listened to your recording mm-hmm. and i noticed you know the writing credit and i so i uh, i went uh, and of course listened to some of her things and i think uh excellent uh you know excellent choices and and I think uh you know it's always interesting to me what what you when you talk about the idea that when you play another person's music, it's almost like you are experiencing that person vicariously through their music. Uh you know it's like uh I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly, you know, Beethoven said to his his attorney, his manager, Schindler, one time he asked him what was the purpose of music and, and Schindler kind of stumbled around with some answers and Beethoven finally said, well, you're a fool, Schindler. He said what the purpose of music is, is to put you... Into the mindset of the composer, the the subconscious of the composer at the time they wrote that piece of music, so I think you're spot on when you say that it really puts you into, into that you know headspace and that you can share with them when you play their music.
1: Absolutely, it's it it brings us back to you know how deeply, um, how how deep the music is to the musicians that play it. You know, it really is an Mm -hmm. extension of of the musicians you know self so that that seems like a great way to describe the purpose of music
0: sure i agree i agree well i'm curious to know of your six originals that uh you wrote for the new album which ones changed the most from your original concept before you went into the studio to record them and then and you know in terms of how they came out on the on the finishing end and if so, how so?
1: There was definitely changes that were made. You know, some of the songs on this album I wrote or started writing when I was 12, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. and you know through performing them over a few years. and just through the growth I just naturally had as a singer and as a piano player, there were just changes that were made, whether it was through the music or you know, slight changes in the lyrics and the arrangement. But I definitely kept true to, to the essence and, and the message of any of the songs that I kind of had carried through my, my career so far. I wanted to keep them as, as the originals had been. Um, but there was definitely changes to, you know, even just slight changes to the music and into the, mm-hmm. the, the singing.
0: Well, what input did you receive on the final versions of the tunes, you know, either from your producer or other musicians who recorded with you?
1: You know, I was pretty much the producer on the album, so okay. I worked extremely close with the musicians. Um, you know, I had uh, Don Davis and Joel Edinburgh on saxophone, and I have Mike Walsh, Chris Angelone, and, and Ben Rogers on for some songs for drums. And so I worked really closely with my engineer and with the musicians. So I think we all were creating the music, you know, simultaneously. Really, we we all were um, just having so much fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, oh, very good. Very good. Well, other than recording and releasing uh, a new album, how have you been keeping mentally and musically active since most live music has been shut down because of COVID-19?
1: Songwriting has been a big, you know, part of this whole quarantine and, and having more time at home. You know, I was doing a lot of uh, some live stream performances as well with my band, and then recording remotely at home, preparing for the mm. next batch of songs and new music. So mm. a lot of a lot of create creative time, which was really fun to, to be able to really sit down and, and enjoy kind of a big long songwriting process into kind of the beginnings of recording.
0: So not without the pressures of being on the road or getting ready for the next gig, you've got a little bit more of a relaxed sort of pace and you could really take time to uh, to dig into your creative, uh, you know, creative side and and create some new some new music. Well, that leads me right into uh, the next uh, question I'm curious to know about your creative process. Uh, first of all, what usually inspires you when you write?
1: I mean, it differs I really between, I think, songs. Some songs just kind of come almost fully formed if I have an idea that really um, I connect with or, you know, I kind of start off with a visual image or an experience or an idea for a song and then you know kind of the lyrics come and then the music can be shaped around that kind of understanding what what the energy and kind of the the vibe of the song will be then that shapes the music but i've had you know i've had a couple songs where i come up with this really cool progression or you know mm-hmm. chord changes in music and the lyrics kind of just almost uh, come after the music's there because the music already speaks so much that the lyrics just come, try, just come and complement it. So I, it really does. I write a few different ways. I, th- I think it just depends. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh So you don't always just start with, say, uh, uh, a particular catchphrase or uh, or a set of uh, lyrics, and then think, oh, that might make kind of an interesting hook or an interesting chorus or something, and then, and then uh, you know, you you kind of sometimes like you said everything just comes all out at once it's completely formed completely you know in your in your concept uh you know because uh, musical thinking works that way i think you know uh, sometimes we can we'll we'll think of uh you know musicians we we express ourselves when we create a melody in our in our mind. Or as you said, you know, you come up with an interesting set of chord changes. So that's, uh, that's kind of, that's very interesting. Do you uh, keep any kind of a a, a sketchbook, either uh, physical or digital uh, with melodic ideas or vamps or other musical ideas that you might draw upon later?
1: I definitely have notebooks full of ideas. And um, my biggest, I think, place where song ideas are are kept is in my phone you know I have all of these oh my gosh there must be thousands of audio recordings or little clips of song ideas or even just phrases that I that I kind of think of and I want to just save them for later uh, and then I kind of come back and look through everything when I'm in kind of my creative songwriting process mm-hmm. and then if I find an idea that I really like and I kind of start Forming it, I'll just take out even just a pencil and paper and just start coming up with the more lyrics to kind of build on it or kind of jotting out the arrangement. So it definitely forms very uh, naturally.
0: Oh, okay. Now, speaking of that, when you uh, are you the kind of uh, writer who is disciplined? In other words, you sit down and set aside a certain time of day to, okay, I'm going to sit down and work at writing, or are you just a complete, you know, you wait for inspiration to hit, and away you go?
1: I think a lot of it is kind of allowing it to come on its own. I think when you try to force writing, if you're not, if there's not a specific reason or something you really want to say or need to say, it can definitely be, be a little bit of a, a writer's block, I think. A big part of songwriting is, you know, at least for me, is having feeling like I have I have to say something, and I have a specific thing that I want to get across. Mm-hmm. So whether whether it's I think songwriting it definitely happens all over. I don't think I ever schedule a time, and it's it stays in those parameters. <laughs> just to uh to turn a long story short, it definitely spreads out over over many weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah, and sometimes inspiration never comes at a convenient time, anyway.
1: Right, so, right. yeah,
0: I hear you. I hear you. Well, I take it from what you've already said that you are already writing new songs.
1: Absolutely. Yes. I am yeah. writing new songs, finishing up songs that I've been working on and beginning some at home recording. So it's okay. very exciting.
0: Well, then it sounds like this is practically an answer to my next question. Then, Are you planning a new album now that You Ain't Unlucky is out?
1: Absolutely. It's in the works. And I'm just cannot wait until I get to share it with everyone.
0: Any, any hint as to when we might see a new album from you?
1: Oh, man. Well, I'm hoping for next year. But I don't okay. know if I can say anything more. Um, but it definitely as soon as possible. That's when. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, I, I understand. I mean, sometimes I know that that you know, I ask that question, and I know that the answer sometimes might be I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> because marketing is kind of an interesting uh, uh, avenue all of its own. But it's nice to know that you've got more music coming out, because I think we need more of that upbeat happiness that your music brings. Uh, so. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's talk some more about the future. What are you gearing up for when uh, when uh, the uh, pandemic recedes enough for us to tour and get back to playing live?
1: Well, you know, I, I did. I've been touring. You know, obviously less but still doing some shows for this album, but hopefully next year if things continue to kind of come back to normal and everything's safe and we're obviously gonna remain very, very vigilant um, just to do more shows, maybe tour more nationally. I've been staying you know, semi-regional in the Northeast here, but I hope to, to get back out on the road and to see more of the country and to see more people and to perform.
0: Well, that'd be that'd be wonderful. That'd be wonderful. Well, I would invite you to come to the Upper Midwest. Uh, I,
1: it's on top of the list. I, I really can't wait to get to the, to get to the Midwest.
0: We have some. Uh, I think we have some really wonderful venues. Uh, I live just outside of Milwaukee, and uh, we have some wonderful venues in Milwaukee. We have the largest outdoor music festival in the world here during the summer. And, uh, I bet you, you would be excellent, would find an excellent audience up here in our, our neck of the woods. And, uh, so I'll look forward to some time when you're, uh, you're coming our way and you never know, you might find me in your audience. Oh
1: my gosh. Well, that would be an honor (laughs) to be able to come up there and play that festival. And and hopefully, yes, meet you in person one day soon.
0: Yeah. Well, memorize my face because, uh, (laughs) it's a face made for radio. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, well, that's great. Well, Veronica, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about?
1: I mean, I guess the only thing that I want to say is just thank you to, to everyone supporting and encouraging me and um you know, this year, this year and a half has been crazy for for everyone and especially musicians. It can be really hard to stay inspired and, and motivated. But with everyone's love and and everyone backing me up, especially through the release of this album, it, it just means everything to me. And just a just a big thank you, especially to you, Craig, for having me on the show. This is this is a big deal.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I will let my listeners know that, of course, as I usually do in my show notes, There are uh, links to your website, Facebook page. Uh, I even put some YouTube uh, links up of your performances so that people who listen to me can discover more about you, Veronica, and and check out your your music. So Veronica, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I want to wish you the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future.
1: Well, thank you so much. That really means a lot. And thank you again for having me on the show. And I hope to talk with you again really soon.
0: You bet. Bye now. My Discovery Composer of the Week is John Knowles Payne, an American composer and teacher. He was the first native born American to win acceptance as a composer of large scale concert music and one of the first to be named professor of music at Harvard. Payne was born in Portland, Maine in 1839 and died in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1906. Paine came from a musical family. His father ran a music store, published sheet music, and conducted the town band. Two uncles were professional musicians. His grandfather built one of the first pipe organs in Maine and conducted a band. As a youth, Payne studied organ, piano, harmony, and counterpoint with Hermann Kotschmar, a conservatory-trained musician who had emigrated from Germany in 1848 and settled in Maine. After a thorough musical grounding, Payne sailed for Europe in September of 1858, accompanied by the Ludwig von Beethoven biographer Alexander Thayer. In Berlin, he studied organ with Karl-August Haupt, and orchestration and composition with Wilhelm Friedrich Weiprecht, among others. He remained abroad for three years, traveling during vacations, playing the organ and giving recitals in Germany and England. He met and played for Clara Schumann, and he was affected by the rediscovery of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach then current in Berlin. In his recitals, he included his own works as well as those of Bach, Felix Mendelssohn and Ludwig Thiel. During this visit and also during a second lengthy one to Germany in 1866 through 1867, Payne absorbed the style, manner and taste, of the German musical world and put them to immediate use upon his return to the United States. When he settled in Boston in 1861, Payne started a series of organ recitals and public lectures on musical style, forms, and history. These ultimately won him an appointment to the faculty of Harvard assistant professor in 1873, full professor in 1875, which he retained until retirement in 1905. The Department of Music that he organized was to be a model for many others in American universities. Paine became the idol of the arbiter of the Boston genteel tradition in the arts. John Sullivan Dwight, whose Boston-based Journal of Music was always flattering when reporting Payne's concerts and lectures, and more importantly, when lobbying for more attention to music at Harvard. Payne was a charter member of the American Guild of Organists and played first at Boston's West Church then at Harvard's Appleton Chapel for several decades before his energies were directed toward composition and teaching. His early organ recitals included major works of Bach, not often heard in the United States at that time. Payne also lectured at the New England Conservatory, on whose board he sat as a friendly advisor. He taught at Boston University and he appears to have had a large circle of musical friends, notably conductor Theodore Thomas, pianist Amy Fay, and singer Emma Eames. Payne's composition students at Harvard included John Alden Carpenter, Frederick Shepherd Converse, Mabel Wheeler Daniels, Arthur Foote, Edward Burlingame Hill, Clayton uh, Johns, Daniel Gregory Mason, Carl Ruggles, and Walter Spaulding. Payne advised Henry Lee Higginson in the founding and early development of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. In 1898, he became a member of the National Institute of Arts and Letters. Payne married Mary Elizabeth Greeley, a native of Portland, Maine, in 1869. Following his death, she arranged for several of his larger works to be published by Breitkopf and Hertel. She also established the John Knowles Payne Traveling Fellowship, awarded to Harvard students who show distinguished talent and originality in musical composition and scholarship. Payne served the Harvard community for 43 years. By his presence and by his serious concern with music in a liberal arts college, he awakened a regard for music among many generations of Harvard men. His writings testify to his insistence upon the place of music within the liberal arts. Performances of his compositions were treated as major cultural events in Boston and Cambridge and attracted frequent interest in New York, Brooklyn, Chicago, and Philadelphia to judge from reviews in the principal literary journals. He was commissioned to write a major commemorative composition for each of America's expositions during his lifetime. His compositions formed a prominent part of the musical activities in Cambridge, most notably his music for the performance in Greek of Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus at Harvard's Sanders Theater in 1881. Paine nourished the Harvard community with over 100 original musical compositions for use in campus plays, concerts, and other diversions with numerous lectures and prose articles, and by his presence as college organist, teacher, and companion. He made Cambridge a center of musical America and attracted members of the Cambridge and Boston intelligentsia. He was a pioneer not only in setting up a college department of music, but in being a composer in residence in contrast to the nature of appointments in contemporary European universities. Payne modeled his early works upon the style of the masters he had studied, especially Bach and the Viennese classicists. The early keyboard music, the mass in D, the first symphony, the oratorio, St. Peter, and the early cantatas are all in the accepted academic style prevalent before 1860 in German and German-American circles. Some of them, notably the mass in D, go beyond mere competence to genuine inspiration and grandeur. Then, in a desire to align himself with musical progress, even after having written scathingly against the corruption of chromaticism, pain altered his musical style by infusing it with greater chromatic activity, although never losing the strength and vigor of his individual style. A decline in health brought on by diabetes, bitterness at the lack of acceptance of his opera Azara, it was never staged, it was initially scheduled for the 1905-1906 season at the Metropolitan Opera, but the company resisted preparing an opera in English. And the wear upon him of the academic ennui of such a long teaching career contributed to a slacking of compositional activity in the last two decades of his life. The change in style may be may seen by comparing his two symphonies. The first, while not of uniformly superior quality, states its classical case with force and eloquence. A masterly handling of the sonata idea is notable in the opening movement and a lovely mid-19th century melodic slow movement. In the second symphony, Paine incorporates elements of program music and organizes a much larger work in an almost Wagnerian manner through transformation and thematic recurrence. Another work from this, uh, from this period, perhaps his finest from his later years, is the prelude to Oedipus Tyrannus, which shows clear examples of thematic transformation cyclic construction, and chromatic key relationships. A more pronounced stylistic change may be seen in the two versions of the violin sonata extensively rewritten in the last year of his life. Traditional key relationships and diatonic voice leadings in the original are replaced by chromatic, mediant, and semitone key relationships and non-functional chord resolutions in the later version. For the most part, these changes greatly strengthen the musical statements. Throughout his career, Paine's music in general was characterized by a strong sense of tonality, by regular metric organization and distinctive rhythmic figuration, by sensitive orchestration and textural devices, and by controlled harmony marked by an increasing chromaticism. Paine was rewarded in his lifetime by great attention to his large works, the Mass in D, the Oratorio St. Peter, the two symphonies, some of the cantatas and music for plays. His music was performed frequently by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Theodore Thomas Orchestra. The all-music lists recordings of 46 of Payne's compositions, including keyboard, vocal choral, symphonic, and one work for band. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Payne's Poseidon and Amphitrite, an ocean fantasy performed by the Ulster Orchestra under the direction of Joanne Folletta. That wraps episode number 65. My show notes, along with links to artists' websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with Nashville-based husband and wife duo, Elder. We have a great discussion about their individual music careers in Nashville and how they have come together to create a unique sound with Elder. Other upcoming interviews will include Chicago based composer and pop performer, Cassandra Kazor, David Wimbush of the North Carolina based indie pop band, The Collection, Brooklyn, New York based indie folk rock band, The Bergamot, and portland oregon based jazz trumpet player Farnell Newton, so don't touch that dial and stay tuned if you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h u r s t c at u w m dot so until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog, signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.